But whenever there's a fight on or someone to woo, he is like locked in on that. No script listeners, welcome back. It is another Monday. We are here with another script. This is No Script, the podcast, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Welcome back, everybody. We are excited to be coming at you with a classic script. Those who are longtime listeners know that we kind of go back and forth between doing uh, more modern scripts, scripts of the past 30, 40 years, and lots of scripts, too, that were uh, written and produced long time before that, even. And this one was produced a long, long, long time before that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're we're jumping back into the the annals of history to the 1600s. Right, yes we are and we are jumping back into uh, one of the really remarkable things that happened to playwriting at that time, or or at least one of the, the notable moments, which was uh, Afra Bean became one of the, not maybe the first, but certainly one of the first female playwrights to have any sort of real prominence. So uh, if you know your theater history, you know that today we are discussing The Rover. Yes, The Rover, or The Banished Cavaliers, written by Afra Bain. And uh, uh, before we jump into some of the context around it, which is going to be some of the kind of, I'm guessing a bit more of the meat of what we talk about today, for once, is going to be some of the context for this play. But uh, before we do that, I did just want to grab your attention for a second about our Patreon page. Those of you who are longtime listeners of the show know that... Uh, the best way to help us out is to check out our Patreon page. If if you go over there, you're going to find, uh, go over to patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. You're going to find a couple of tiers over there, and we have uh, tiers for as low as $1. And at that $1 amount, you are actually helping out quite a bit for the running of the show. There's various uh, fees and, uh, you know, play script prices associated with us doing this. While we love doing this podcast, it is not a completely free endeavor for us. So... If you have enjoyed No Script in the past and are enjoying it right now and want to find a way to contribute to the show, I strongly suggest you go and check us out over on patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. And uh, we would so appreciate the the continued support. We've been so uh, blessed with all of the listenership over these uh, now three seasons of the show. So thank you all for that. And thank you to everyone who checks us out over on Patreon. That's right. Yeah, it, it's hugely helpful to us when you choose to support us in that way. So we're excited for any of you that are going to go over and support us. Back to the script. Uh, the to Rover the script. is, as we mentioned, a very, very, very old play. Premiered 1677 at the Duke's Theatre in London. The play is set during carnival time in Italy, and one of the things that occurs in the play is kind of a cultural differences between English folk and Spanish folk, all of whom are in Italy for carnival time. So there's this sort of melting pot of cultures and the tensions that arise between them at the time. As we've noted, Afra Bean is known, is so... 
uh, the, one of the reasons why she has such prominence is that she's one of the first playwrights who was a woman who was able to really successfully make a name for herself in a field that back then and even still today is really dominated by men. Yeah, absolutely. This is a so this is a theater that at the time that came through a whole bunch of uh, kind of uh, renaissances, almost almost a second set of renaissance for the English theater because it's right after uh, Oliver Cromwell was toppled. Uh, Oliver Cromwell, for those of you who know, uh, started the Commonwealth, outlawed theater in his puritanical government, and uh, beheaded the king Charles the first and. Uh, this play is written in the time frame of Charles II. Uh, Charles II has been returned to the throne. He has brought over um, some of his uh, French courtiers, and one of them is going to be uh, the first uh, female actress on the English stage as well. His his wife will be will be that actress. So this is a time when some revolutions were happening in uh, in the playwriting and the play producing scene in general. And in walks Aphra Bain with this play, with this bunch of plays. She writes like, you know, close to, I think 10 plays were mentioned in the, uh, the anthology that I have that she premiered on stages across England. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the kind of the comedic world at the time, which she would have been writing in was all about this restoration comedy, which are these comedies that really just exist to sort of incessantly mock the world around them. They're, they're, they tend to be fairly immoral. They're, the characters in them tend to do things that people at the time, and even still today, we kind of go, whoa, what, why would you make yeah. that decision? And this play is no <laughs> exception perhaps especially still today we <laughs> we uh, react that way maybe more so than they would at the time yeah absolutely and and the play is hilarious it's funny to read i'm sure that it's funny to see but man it is cringeworthy at times some Ooh, of the things yeah, that these characters do yeah, absolutely. What what Aphra Bain does really well in this script is adopt the form of theater at the time, which, as Jacob mentioned, is this restoration com comedy. So it's it's full of kind of ribald stuff. It uses uh, sex and forced sex as a joke sometimes um, in this play, and and part of the the laughing parts of this play are people chasing each other and the dynamic there. So that's what we're getting into. Just so you know, um, maybe this. Is maybe maybe the time for the the uh, headphone warning was a minute ago, but sorry about that. But this is what we're jumping into: is this kind of um, light-hearted treatment of uh, sexually fanciful people at, at festival time, which is, uh, in, I believe, in this instance, the festival right before Lent. Right. Yeah. And and the goal of this cast of folks that arrive for carnival is to find somebody to sleep with. Some of them yeah, have someone much. very specific that they want to end up with, either in a more amorous, you know, marital way. Some of them are just there to find someone. Right. Or multiple someones, as we, we uh, end up discovering from some of them. Um, perhaps it's a good time for me to jump in with some synopsis before we start engaging with some of the specifics of it. Um, as we've mentioned, these folks are all here in Naples to uh, celebrate uh, this festival, which is the festival of, of pre-Lent, um, uh, just before the, the long time of the, the Holy Week of Lent. And so everyone is out, and it's a big mosque or mask party um, where everyone is 
is out in the streets and uh, some of the stringent rules around uh, Catholic and and from the English side, Puritan governed realms are uh, a bit lax during this festival. Um, we are introduced to a number of characters, a, a vibrant cast of characters throughout this, but perhaps the, uh, in order of appearance at least, and importance, we meet Florinda and Helena, who are sisters, as well as, there's another sister in there too, um, help me out here, Jacob, who's the other sister? <laughs> Valeria. Thank you. Valeria is the other sister. So those are three sisters, Florinda, Helena, and Valeria, and they are... Uh, all sisters to Don Pedro as well, who is a noble of the, uh, a Spanish noble. Um, that family unit is kind of rotating around two cruxes, which are Florinda is uh, part of the, uh, is, is going to be married off to someone eventually. And so uh, both Don Pedro and their father are trying to marry her off to different people. And she is madly in love with a English colonel named Belleville, or Belleville, um, and Belleville, uh, backstory, uh, they met at a siege and he defended her from a bunch of, uh, you know, the common soldiers and stuff and they fell madly in love, but alas, a noble woman and a colonel of, of English blood could never, ever meet. And, um, or never, never uh, have a full, full relationship. So that is the struggle there. Um, the other struggle within this family unit is Helena, uh, who is the, I believe, the younger sister, is promised to the uh, the nunnery. Um, she is destined to become a nun in the church, and as such, is not allowed to uh, find her own true love in the world. So that's what that group is rotating around. I think the other large group in town is the English who have uh, docked. The English have come to town. Um, and those English, in <laughs> they include Belleville, uh, the aforementioned English colonel, who is uh, returns his affections to Florinda. He is uh, lovesick for her and is in the city of Naples, I believe, partially to try to, to find her and uh, figure out a way that they can be together. And then there are his uh, first two mates that we meet, which are Frederick, uh, who is an English gentleman, and Blunt, um, appropriately named Blunt, um, as we come to find out. Uh, these are, uh, all three of these folks are either in the army or are pirates or are without money because, as I mentioned, hearkening back, this play is set around the time of the Commonwealth. So, so all of these lords have been stripped of their power and are... Uh, throughout the play, uh, probably much to Aphra Bain's benefit within the society of the time, cast shade towards Oliver, Oliver Cromwell and the uh, Commonwealth that was in effect at the time. So all these guys are without money. They're kind of hard up. They have some, but they're mostly there with their wits and their swords. And um, speaking of wits, Wilmore enters the scene as one of their friends as well. Wilmore is the titular rover of this play, and uh, he is uh, a rover in multiple means. He is a pirate, he is a, uh, a, a rover in terms of his relationships, a very promiscuous relationships with women throughout the town, and uh, we assume in the past as well. And these are the two big groups that kind of move around in town and intertwine with each other. Other characters that we will surely speak of are Don Antonio, who, at, the, at least at the beginning of the play, uh, Don Pedro, if you remember, is uh, Florinda's brother. Don Pedro is trying to marry Florinda to Don Antonio. Whew. Uh, how, Man, how that, are we doing? Was a, that was a sprint, huh? <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> Is y'all still with us? Because it's only more complicated from here. <laughs> yeah, it's it's wildly complex. And there are moments as you encounter the story where you finally think things are going to start coming to a head and then they get spun off in wildly new directions. Here's a great yeah. example of that and just a great mo- moment in terms of plot and story writing. Uh, due to some mishaps, again, this is carnival time, so uh, mistaken identity and disguised identity is perhaps the crucial way that characters play tricks on each other and accomplish their goals. Due to some mistaken identity or identity uh, disguises, Don Pedro believes that um, Belleville is someone who has scorned him previously. Really, the person who scorned him is Wilmore, but Belleville's taken the fall for it, as he does a couple of times for Wilmore throughout the throughout the play. In any case, Don Antonio says, well, you can make it up to me by going disguised as me to duel Don Pedro. And uh, for uh, basically another uh, slight, <laughs> for another slight, that Don Pedro and Don Antonio are are dealing with this whole thing about uh, the the sister that Don Pedro Florinda that Don Pedro wants to marry to Don Antonio. Anyway, <laughs> Belleville shows up in disguise as Don Antonio. Now remember, Belleville wants to marry Florinda, the sister. Don Pedro wants Antonio to marry. Florinda, the sister. So you've, they show up and all this gets worked out. No one really knows why they're there or who they're supposed to meet. But finally, once they all figure it out, uh, Don Pedro goes, oh, great, you're here. Do you want to marry her? And Belleville, <laughs> in disguise as Antonio, says, what? This is so perfect. I'll get married, right. him thinking I'm Don Antonio, and this will all work out in the end. And the audience goes, oh, great, I see where this is going. What a delightful trick. And right. <laughs> then into the scene walks Wilmore as he does throughout the play. The rover just roves between bands of people and storylines yeah. seemingly at will, wanders into this scene and goes, Belleville, hey, how are you? <laughs> and like yep. goes to embrace him and knocks his disguise off. And the whole plot is that, that whole uh, a trick is just ruined by Wilmore. And as the audience, you go, what? (laughs) I thought I had this one figured out. Yeah. Wilmore repeatedly would have the lines thrown at him, stop helping me. Um, He just keeps rolling into scenes and, and messing things up completely, misreading situations, too drunk to understand what's going on sometimes. And yeah, just repeatedly will, 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 run into different places and and not judge the situation correctly. I, I'm um, interested, Jackson, while we're talking about him, why is he the title character? I mean, you don't, I mean, you 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 start to encounter the story and I've encountered the story a couple of times before, so I'm coming into it with my eyes open a little bit about knowing what's going to happen, but even still, you start reading the story and the plot seems like it's going to be about primarily Belleville and Florinda, maybe with a little bit of Helena thrown in. And that that does kind of frame a little bit of the story that we encounter as we go. But Wilmore is the title character, and and I'm not necessarily sure that that's like the wrong decision or anything, but it's an interesting one. 
Yeah, it's certainly odd. It's like if Henry the Fourth was titled Falstaff. Yes, um, right. Yes, that's a great yeah. comparison. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. I mean, he's certainly a character that uh, draws a lot of focus whenever he's on stage. Uh, Wilmore. Uh, Many of the characters kind of like him or respect him or at different times hate him. Um, but uh, at the and start, would, at least everyone... I, I would think that most characters experience all three. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I think I would agree with that. Yep. <laughs> um, but I, I actually I actually agree with you. I'm not sure why this play is called The Rover um, other than perhaps it centers the play on the English because it's on the English stage, or because it was written for the English stage. Um, otherwise, and, and, it, and it does. I, I, I mean, there's there's some structure to warrant Wilmore, in some odd fashion, becoming kind of the central character. Because of course, the end of the play is Wilmore's marriage or his right. departure to marriage. That's where the story ends. He is finally this rover among women, right? This person that just sleeps around that has two or three different women that he's professed love to and, and offered to marry throughout the course of the script that has not worked out due to his own infidelity. But finally, <laughs> one of them manages to lasso him and force him to marry her. And that's how the story ends. The, the Florinda Belleville plot line that has been followed for a lot of the script was wrapped up much earlier than that. Right. Yeah. And, and there are a large percentage of scenes that we get with uh, Wilmore and one other character. Um, uh, and as opposed to many of the other characters in this play. So there's plenty. I, I agree that the play offers plenty of opportunity for him to be uh, kind of the central character. But I also agree that plot wise doesn't make a whole lot of sense <laughs> why he is because the main beats of the play center or that what moves the play forward is this uh attempt by florinda and belleville to find a way to be together in the face of multiple different problems that get flown in their way yeah and i, and I haven't counted the scenes or anything but i'm also i'm not convinced that in just in terms of stage time, the Belleville Florinda scenes or or the scenes that relate primarily to that plot outweigh the the storyline of Helena versus Angelica. You know, that doesn't not it, it does not at first seem like it's going to be that important of a plot because it does not really get rolling for uh, a couple of scenes. You kind of forget get that that part of the plot is going to exist because Wilmore and Helena do their little flirtatious fall in love thing almost right away and then that doesn't really come up again until the stuff with Angelica really gets rolling which is a little bit later in the play but that back and forth of of what is Wilmore going to do with the fact that he is simultaneously wooing two really uh, strong women who are not going to be slighted by this dolt, you know, that that does take, I mean, that takes up a lot of the script in a way that is surprising because the Belleville Florinda plot seems like something we've heard before from comedies, from scripts from the time. So it kind of begins the play and you think that's where you're going, but I'm not convinced that you that ultimately the Helena Angelica plotline doesn't at least come up to equal bear in terms of how much time it takes from the script and what we're actually following. 
Yeah, I agree that that there's a there's a lot of time spent with these characters. We haven't really introduced Angelica too much, um, and and it it might be Angelica, but I'm going to say it the with the English pronunciation Angelica. Um, Angelica Bianca is a famous courtesan who has come to town for the festival, and uh, in coming to town for the festival, she has posted out that uh, her hire rate is it's a thousand crowns, right? Right, yeah, just an outlandish amount of money. And that becomes this kind of feature of the festival this year, that the most beautiful courtesan ever to live is here, and she's charging an outrageous amount of money, and all the young men are in love with her, and all the young men are trying to scrap together money to be able to to, to hire her out. And, and several of the male characters in the play from both the English and Spanish parties end up trying to woo her in some fashion or another. Some of them just straight up have the money. My understanding is right. that Don Antonio just has the money. Yep, and 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 will gladly pay to to be there, which is part of, we'll, we'll track back for just a second, which is why he and Pedro kind of get in up in arms against each other because they both want to be with Angelica, but they're both masked and they kind of figure out, or, or I think... Uh, uh, Pedro figures out that Don Antonio is who he is, and so he tried, challenges him to a duel. All that happens, but all of that is centered around Angelica being in town. Right, and as you mentioned, which was good that we started with that understanding, Wilmore does not have any of this money, right? Him and his <laughs> Zero com- money. compadres, they, they are without money. They have just a little bit to get them by, basically. And Wilmore shows up, and I guess falls in love with her i mean what do you say about wilmore (laughs) why does he so passionately pursue helena who he refers to as this young gypsy throughout the play which is you know kind of one of those squeamish moments but in fairness she is pretending to be a gypsy and uh, yeah so he fall you know he so immediately falls in love i guess with her but then like a scene or two later, he sees Angelica and he's immediately forgotten all of his dinner plans with Helena. And now he's passionately in love with this one. And it's like, I, so I guess he falls in love with her or something. <laughs> falls in lust. I, think- I mean, I suppose it depends on how earnestly you're playing uh, a Wilmore's desire for, you know, his, his true romantic desire for any of these women. Yeah, I think tucked into this play, there are quite a few uh, worldview monologues um, that people end up saying. And I think Wilmore's worldview is very much the love the person you're with sort of worldview. Um, I think... Ah, uh, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna wind up in some place that I don't want to be when I go down this road, but I'm going down it anyway. Uh, I think he... Uh, does kind of love them as much as he can when he is with uh, someone. <laughs> but as soon as the person is gone, he has, he, it's like he's, he's, he's interested in the chase. And, and thus when he's, when the chase is in front of him, he, uh, he goes for that option rather than remembering uh, the love that he had for anyone else prior to that moment. Right, and I th- I think that he's intentionally set up to be kind of a counterpoint to Lucetta. L- Lucetta is a courtesan or a um, maybe more of a con artist, and she woos another of the Englishmen, Blunt, 
and she woos Blunt, and they play this sort of uh, trick where they rob him. They drop him through the floor in her home, basically, into a sewer in nothing but his underclothes and leave all of his stuff behind and rob him blind. Uh, Lucetta does. And he, Blunt, comes back with this real passionate anger against all women for the slight that has been done to him by this one woman. And both of Wilmore's love interests uh, throughout the play, so that would be both um, Helena and Angelica, both of them have similar reactions to being slighted and being thrown off and being uh, cast aside for the other of them by Wilmore. And I think that there's some parallel there in saying you know, Lucetta does what she does to Blunt out of a desire to hurt him or get something from him or, or you know, play a trick or, or some other negative desire. And that may not be true of Wilmore. That's a good point. I don't think I, I'd really uh, thought about those two as kind of polar points within this play. But that's that's true. There's there's there's. The element of the con artist in both of them, uh, but but I think the 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 underlying motive of one of the other is is fundamentally different. Yeah, I agree. And you know the the play deals in gender and in power and in sex and in love as currency, and so to see these two people of either gender both intentionally jilt their supposed lovers. It it warrants comparison, and it also makes you say, well, this person, Afra Bean, writing for this time, is there some commentary being made on the way that men go about hurting women or the way that men perceive how they're hurt by women, maybe versus the reality of situations? I'm not totally sure. Yeah, I think there's there's plenty of room for commentary within this. You can read. I I, I believe that Afra or Afra Bain uh, used a form that was accepted by people to sneak in some really compelling themes in here. And one of them is is a theme that's around what we're talking about this this dynamic of Angelica and Helena being uh, uh, two sides of a triangle with Wilmore. Um, and, and you see them handle the situation in two very different ways. Angelica starts with a lot of power in just the world, but also over Wilmore. Uh, Wilmore steals a painting of hers and like uh, tries to get away with it. A lot of people fight over it, and eventually she brings him in to like assumedly uh, Will or Wilmore's friends think to basically kill him over it. They think that she's he's offended her so badly that well, and, and they're uh, also just they they're trying to come up with an explanation for why the world's most beautiful, famous courtesan would call penniless Wilmore into her home. Right. <laughs> yep. And and we 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 discover that there that uh Wilmore being a talkative uh rogue that he is um is is quite witful and and the, and she ends up I think I think within this play she admits that she falls in love with Wilmore. Angelica does. And that begins a kind of a uh, a 
devolution of her power. She uh, turns to revenge eventually, and there's some fun dynamic with that. And in that way, she's a lot like Blunt's reaction to what happened to him by Lu Lucetta. Uh, he's tricked by her, and he goes for revenge. He ends up taking it out on whoever he wants. But still, there's that parallel there. I, I, I like that in this story as well that there is Helena, who, when seeing what happened... That, that he is cheating on her with Angelica, uh, she decides to play the game and manipulate and gain power as a result of it. I like that there's these two balances in here of seeing different tactics to deal with what Wilmore just wantonly does in the world. Right, absolutely. And, and I love that you mention Angelica and Helena as these sort of counterpoints on the triangle because... I, I mean, it, it may not be possible, really, for Aphrodite to have written two characters that are more inversely related, right? Angelica <laughs> is a courtesan who spends her life sleeping with men and, and, and finally has one sort of break through the noise to capture her heart, right? Tale as old as time. The courtesan finally falls in love with one penniless young man. Oh, that's, so yeah, repeated. Oh, so Moulin Rouge. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and and then of course on the other side of it, Helena is a nun, right, or a nun in training, the opposite right. of a courtesan who's never who knows nothing about love. The opening scene is basically Florinda making fun of Helena for the fact that she knows nothing about men, nothing about love, and she so wants to fall in love but doesn't know anything about it. Right. Angelica, who has all of this, you know, we can use the term love for like physical sex, has all of this love and doesn't need any more only for money. She's not interested in any anything beyond just the cold, hard transaction. And you have Helena, who's after wants the real love. And both of them end up finding Wilmore. Right. <laughs> and yeah, Wilmore is, is somehow uh, both of those things combined. <laughs> And, you know, when, when you're thinking about Helena, you can sort of pass it off and say, well, she was just out looking for somebody, right? And, and it's sort of by chance that their group comes across the Englishmen in the street and they only really stop to talk to them at all because Florinda notices Belleville among them. And so that causes them to stop and talk. And that's what causes Helena to run into Wilmore. And we know that she wants to meet a guy. And Wilmore is, you know, a normal enough human being that if she really, really wants this, that she might see something in him. But then to, to witness that happen and be able to kind of pass it off and say, OK, well, that's she just wanted it. And she found Wilmore. And how lucky. But then to see Wilmore have to go in and woo Angelica if someone who doesn't is not interested, is not looking, does not want it at all, you'd think. That's at least one way to play her, I guess. I mean, that that's a very different take on, on how Wilmore goes about his uh, machinations. Right, right. And, and, and the various success rates of what he does. Um, he seems to be someone who thrives in adversity. Um, no matter no matter what type of adversity it is, um, he doesn't do well when there's nothing going on. When there's nothing going on and none of his friends are around, we see scenes of him stumbling around drunk. Um, he's he's kind of having a hard time through the festival. But whenever there's a fight on or someone to woo, he is like locked in on that. And and all of his um, his um, his wit, I guess I'm going to keep using the word wit, uh, comes to play in those moments. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and of course, what he does is just absolutely treat women terribly. And and several of the men do, right? The the scene near the end where Blunt, who is so angry about his uh, being robbed by Lucetta that when Florinda, who's running from her brother, uh, stumbles into Blunt's house, I guess, or maybe it's the house that they're all sharing, and so she knows. I think it's the ship. That it's Belleville. Oh, it's the ship, maybe. She, she stumbles yeah, somewhere yep. that Blunt is to hide from her brother, and Blunt is so angry that he just sets about to rape her. Yeah. And then Frederick, another of their friends, uh, comes in and is just going to help. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a long scene and the only thing like it does it's not a quick moment in this. It's like multiple pages uh, of this of this kind of back and forth between Blunt and F- Florinda where she is kind of just begging him to not rape her. And uh, and Frederick comes in and it starts to pile on. And the only thing that eventually stops them is is part of this this weird, not weird, this archaic structure of of society in which they discover that she is a noblewoman and thus a virgin and not a you can't see my my sardonic air quotes right now. Not but they're there, not a whore that they can uh do what they will with. Well, and, like, and it's actually even a half step worse because they just think that she might be a noble woman because she kind of has a ring and because she mentioned Belleville. So it's kind of like, it's it's like that, you know, again, tale as old as time thing where it's like, I won't respect you, but I'll respect your boyfriend. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a one of the rougher scenes in this play, and there's some rough scenes in this play, but that one I think took the cake for me at least, as in terms of what left me feeling the worst after this play. So, what does the play say about women, Jackson, and and the relationships of men and women? Is the play a, a sort of rant about how poorly men treat women? I, I don't think so, at least all the way through, because there are characters that don't have that in them, and there are women that treat men poorly and pl- play tricks on men throughout the play. So I'm just, it's its so interesting to think about what this play would have meant to the people at the time and what commentary it would have said about the the powerful relationships between men and women. Yeah, it, I don't think, I mean, it doesn't, it certainly doesn't critique them outright because it would be a, a, a business death for a playwright to do so at the time, I think. What it does is subtly subvert some of the themes. You have uh, Angelica Bianca, who is a very powerful woman who can hold her own for the most part with uh, Wilmore sparring. We we only talked about the in, kind of the initial wooing that Wilmore does, but then for the rest of the play, Angelica comes after him and and is stands toe to toe with him most of the time throughout the play. There's always some event that comes up that lets Wilmore slip away because he's the titled character of the play. Um, but um, Rover's got to uh, rove, man. Rover's got to <laughs> rove. <laughs> Rover's got a rove, but multiple times in one scene he tries to rove, and she basically tells him to sit, dog, and wait for me to dismiss you. <laughs> and and so th- I think there's that power dynamic within this play that she plays with. And I think the other character that I mean, she writes she writes Florinda as kind of an archetypal, um, 
this this kind of Romeo and Juliet almost plot between her and Belleville. But then you have Helena, who is this other character who is, I think, uh, I I think she is in some ways the true foil to uh, to uh, Wilmore in this play because whenever they meet, she wins. I don't think there's ever a time that when they're in conversation with each other that Wilmore comes out on top over Helena. There are times when they are separate, when Wilmore does something that hurts Helena and she sees it because it's a mask and everyone's around when no one thinks everyone is around. But I don't think there's ever an interchange or an exchange of a conversation between them where Helena does not come out on top. Yeah, there is this feature really with Wilmore and Angelica and Helena where all three of them in their separate scenes will have these sort of asides where they will basically say, "I this is not what I want to do, but I'm going to do this because of you know my affection for the other person. So you'll get scenes where Angelica will, you know, turn to the audience and say, ah, I know that he's cheating on me, but I just, you know, I, I, he's just, he's just so, I'm just so in love with him or, or I can't help but forgive him or I can't help but be happy when he's around. And even Helena kind of falls victim to whatever the odd chemistry is in this love triangle. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. Uh, and and asides in general feed us into what characters are say are actually feeling throughout this play because all of these characters with the exception of Blunt are uh quite uh best foot forward uh I keep using wit, man. There's like, they, they are witty. They are witty characters. They are, and and I mean that in kind of a classical sense of these are very charismatic people who talk their way through most of their situations, but we, the audience, get these little asides into what they're actually thinking and feeling as they're navigating the very complicated political and uh, sometimes diplomatic structure of this place and these people. Right, so so here's a great example. Wilmore and Angelica are talking. Wilmore has this is the first time that he's gone in to see Angelica. He knows that she's you know supposedly the most expensive, beautiful courtesan. He's I guess fallen in love with her. Whatever you want to do with that, and he is basically feigning that he's upset that someone of such beauty and such quality would be selling herself. And she has in turn fallen in love with him and. Is is trying to woo him, basically woo him, which is working for Wilmore because he's already fallen in love with her. He just wants her to consent to be with him. So now that she's trying to woo him a little, this is working towards his purposes. So she's she says whatever she says to try to get him to, to be in love with her or whatever. And, and Wilmore says aside, curse on thy charming tongue. Dost thou return my fainted contempt with so much subtlety? And then he turns to her and says, Thou's found the easiest way to my heart, though though yet I know that thou all thou that all thou sayest is false. So we have the two parallel parts there, right? He turns to the audience and says, Oh, she's 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 undoing all this fake anger I have with all these subtle words and, and clever speakings, and then turns back to her and says, I know that you're lying. Why you gotta lie to me? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, and and that dynamic is prevalent throughout. It gets to the point that you almost have to make the decision as a production team how how do you treat asides? <laughs> because do you, right, I there mean, are enough of them that you almost have to do something with them. 
Right. Like, does does everyone else on stage have to freeze occasionally? Because sometimes, like, two lines of text on the page are an aside. And, and sometimes there's only one other person there. Or sometimes there's two people very close to the other person. And, it you know, it's it stretches verisimilitude eventually if you don't come up with some sort of convention for we break, here's an aside, and now we're back into it. Yeah, and and... The, you know, one of the things that is so, so good about the play, even in the reading of it, are these witty exchanges. I, I'm using the word like you use, wit. You know, it's <laughs> it's like a play full of drunken, immoral Cyranos, right? I mean, they're just, they're <laughs> all so articulate and so witty in their exchanges that when they get, especially when there's just two people like Angelica and Wilmore, or even when it's, uh, um, you know, uh, Don Pedro and uh, Belleville, they're, when that when two people at cross purposes are speaking back and forth, it's really sharp and really fun to experience alongside the characters. But the asides almost jump out of it. Uh, I mean, yeah. literally they do, right? It's jumping out of the conversation to tell the audience something, or I guess you could play it telling themselves something. Uh, but in any sense, it literally it jumps out of the conversation. But it, it also, it, it kind of takes you out of it a little bit. It, it moves me out of the place I want to be, which is watching these two back and forth. Right. Yeah, it definitely does not uh, lend itself to naturalism or realism in any form. And perhaps that is kind of uh, speaking into the style of this play. Um, there's kind of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge about this whole thing. Um, and 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 the, the trust that is built between audience and uh, actor, I think is something that is maybe a bit foreign to our uh, current theatrical... Ooh, vernacular again. Our current theatrical <laughs> vernacular. Um because I think we're used to kind of shock factor in plays or or uh, having someone we trusted turn out to be someone we don't in the end. And I, I think this aside, this connection with the audience uh, lets you know that though there are moments in this play where you're like, oh, oh, dear, what is going on? <laughs> um, there's there's almost maybe a hint of a promise that don't worry, we're going to wrap this all up in about an hour here. <laughs> It'll be fine in about four hours. <laughs> <laughs> we neglected to mention that if you do the whole thing and you got to read the whole thing, it is interminably long. It is fair, and it's an, a shortening and adaptation of another story. <laughs> like she wrote it, kind of, some of the elements are based on something else, else, and she shortened it. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and of course, there's all kinds of literary illusions throughout, as all the plays of the time have. I don't think this is one of them, but it's, I don't know, it's a feature of plays from the time. You see this over and over, even into some Shakespeare. This, this scene begins with a couple of friends walking on, and two of the friends notice that one of them seems to be so upset, and they guess that it's because they're in love. I mean, that, that probably happens three times in this script. And it's yep. like, uh, what's, the, uh, what's the Shakespeare play where that's basically how it starts? Merchant of Venice. Uh, you get, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, he yeah. Start, I think the play starts, uh, in sooth I know not why I am so sad. And then the other guys yep. figure out it's because maybe he's in love or something like that. You know, the, the, <laughs> things like that where you can make the connections between other scripts of the time. You see them just throughout and they're delightful little nuggets. 
Yeah, and and I think I I caught a couple. I have a I have a good anthology um, that kind of points out some of the cultural things throughout, and and you definitely get the sense if you read an anthology or something like that that takes the time to show you the different beats how uh, political the writing of this play is. Right in in a in a New England again, the monarchy is restored, and this monarch loves the theater because he was exiled and had a bunch of theatrical friends. So. So you so writing into these plays that are produced widely throughout the country these little nuggets of information that let everyone everyone in the uh, in the theater kind of laugh along at something that everyone shares is is just brilliant and again something that we don't really do in a realistic theater convention as much anymore You'd, I mean Improv shows almost do this more than any written play does. You have this shared joke with the audience that you throw into a long-form improv scene, and that gets this communal laugh because everyone knows what's going on in a way that uh, straight plays just never really touch. Yeah, and, and I think some of what you're talking about is the way that this play, maybe you would immediately think of doing plays from the time, this sort of high and haughty, we're doing a restoration comedy. Everybody right. come and, and chuckle along delightfully. And then what the experience of the theater would have been, this is a lewd and crude, bust your guts, look at in shock at your fellow audience members at what these <laughs> folks are doing. You know, it's Peter Brooks talks about rough, immediate theater, right? I mean, for those of you who are much smarter than me, yes, I know that those are two different things in his book. But this play kind of meets at the capstone of those two. It would have been so immediate to the people back then because you're right, it's so filled with the politics of gender and the politics of England at the time and the, the, what it's poking fun at, right? It's a comedy of manners in some way. It's poking fun at the society. And it's rough, right? I mean, at the theater at the time, people would have been standing inches away from these actors right. as they say these things and chase each other around and fight with swords and talk about sex and all this stuff that that all of it is part of the experience and when you read it in your bedford you're a right. little bit separated from that experience right <laughs> yeah yeah as a piece of historical history <laughs> yeah absolutely it, it it you you separate it out and it makes it feel like something else and and and, and so, so yeah keeping that in mind is a good thing something you said before uh all all the kind of the roughness the immediateness the running around of this play this play takes place over just so many locations in this play and there are the Brave be the set designer that takes this job because there are just so many called for things in this play that have to happen. At one point, the bed needs to like collapse into the floor and turn into a trap door for Blunt to fall through into the sewers. <laughs> There's 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 more things like that in this play. Well, and it's the set designer, woe be to the costume designer that takes on this play. Not only oh, do you man. have to do whatever the imagining of the period you're doing the production in, but the playwright very specifically calls for a wild array of outfits throughout the yeah. show. And like even just taking on the characters of Florinda and Helena and uh, the other sister, I forget her name too now. Uh, they, they, they're, <laughs> Every time they come into a scene, it feels like the stage direction is like they enter in a new, even more wild dress. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a masquerade. Everyone in town is running around with different outfits on, and and it's an integral part of the plot. Um, the only, basically, the only people who don't start in masquerade outfit are the English people, and that's and that's an also an, another important part of it is that their faces are recognized throughout the play. But everyone else is wearing something crazy and fun, and so it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It'll. I mean. Setting a play in this festival in with these people as, and making it a necessary thing certainly rises this raises up the spectacle of this play and challenges the design team that takes it on. Absolutely, and you know the the experience of the script is built on dramatic irony, and it's built on dramatic irony and almost nothing else. Right. I mean, that's what masquerade <laughs> scripts are. Right. It's that yeah. the audience knows who's under the mask and the characters don't. And that in this script happens scene after scene after scene. But there was an interesting as I was reading it, Jackson, I don't know, you may have had a different experience. But my experience was that I didn't even really think about that till I finished. And then afterwards, as I'm doing a little bit of thinking and preparation for our conversation, I go, There are so many disguises in that play. But as I'm in the story, I don't know, it just rolls merrily along. It roves scene to scene, right? Oh, now this person's in disguise. Oh, they tricked them. Oh, they got confused. (laughs) And then finally at the end, I was like, wow, was anybody not in disguise at any point in any of the scenes? Maybe just that (laughs) one at the beginning with the English guys. Right. Yeah, you have to kind of remind yourself every so often that like, oh yeah, that's right. They're not they don't know that they're there. And you have to you have to almost have a I, I found myself a little confused throughout and in need of a flow chart of like who is where, who knows what, and, and I had to I had to pay quite a bit of attention to to the goings on for me to follow everything. Again, something that wouldn't necessarily happen when you are watching the play, but in reading the play, uh that that was that was my experience was Oh my goodness! There's another complicating thing, and 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 they're in a new costume, so they've reset the whole thing. And Belleville will never actually find Florinda. How will this end? And and like, who has met Florinda yet? Because at one point I was like, I was sure that Frederick has met Florinda, and then he is involved in the <laughs> almost rape of her at the end, not knowing who she is. And I was like, oh, I guess not. And That's- there's there's so many different plots to follow too like following the fact that many scenes ago don pedro and don antonio agreed to a duel not knowing who each other were becomes very important later on when belleville shows up in disguise as don antonio to duel over angelica yeah (laughs) there's so much of that i i i think the 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 Frederick meeting Florinda bit or knowing who Florinda is, I think that honestly is like a hole in this plot because there's a repeated joke with uh, Wilmore whenever uh, Belleville shows him this locket that has Florinda's picture in it. Wilmore will say like, oh, what a mighty fair wench this is. And then Frederick is always the one that says, that's his lady, Wilmore. <laughs> And he's like, oh, oh, yes. Well, we'll definitely help you get her. No problem. No problem there, bro. But but then Frederick well, yeah, is the one. And, and so I, what I think is that she she's in disguise when she runs into Blunt's whatever, his house or his, his boat or whatever. And so Frederick doesn't recognize her but for the disguise. 
And, oh, okay. And then, okay, okay. And then maybe she See, doesn't yet know that Fred. She doesn't know Frederick well enough yet to know that he's a friend of Belleville, so that she can just remove her disguise and he'll recognize sure. her. I guess. Yeah. Though again, I, I mean, it, there, there's just so much to track. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Such confusion. A merry time in Naples. It is. It's a wonderful romp. You know, it's if if you're willing to just live in the raucous, amoral world that these characters inhabit, where anything goes, then the the experience that you have on the journey is just sort of being part of what will, you know, the, the kind of crazy misadventures that you end up telling stories about in your old age, you know? Like, when I was younger, man, I went to this masquerade and me and my friends got so drunk and I, I met your mom, but I didn't know it was her for a long time. And... <laughs> right. Yeah, it's like Florida stories. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the Rover. Sorry, I, apo- I apologize stories. to anyone who lives in Florida, but that's what they sound like. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so let, let's talk about that as we're winding down the conversation here. Uh, the the kind of uh, at least in in my I read a little bit of uh, history and context about it, and at least in the the book that I have, it talks about this play uh, returned to popularity in the late twentieth century. So and and has become uh, you know a, a piece of historical theater. Where does this play belong in in our theater world nowadays? Can you see this play being produced somewhere? I mean, I, I can. Look, you'd have to deal with some of the uh, attitudes that that are not not chastised as a part of the show, right? I mean, because there's a whole attitude about Jewish people that that was prevalent at the time that makes its way into the play. And so, you know, you need to decide what to do with that. Are you going to highlight it and in your production somehow chastise the characters for their racism? Or are you going to uh, simply eliminate that from the text? You have to do some of that with some of what's in Shakespeare or other similar stuff from the time. And so as you walk through what pieces of the story of this merry misadventure can be producible, I, I mean, I still think it's funny. I still think that there is a world for the rover out there. Now, there are not a lot of major theater companies that produce it. If you're a longtime listener to No Script, you know that at the top of the show, we usually list all the different productions that have happened in recent memory or famous productions. And we did not do that this time simply because there really aren't that many. Royal Shakespeare Company did a couple, but other than that, it's mostly small regional theaters and a lot of university theaters that have made an attempt to mount this show. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. I think there are lots of uh, there are lots of themes in here that still play. I think notably in, in my anthology, this play rests right beside Moliere's Tartuffe. And there are so many things in Tartuffe that are also complicated and maybe would ring not well in 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 our modern theater vernacular. And yet the play is still produced. And it's, you know, and attention is paid to those things and they're tinkered with and reframed. And I think that that is what this play does is it offers you an opportunity. The Rover offer offer. Oof. It offers you an opportunity to, uh, to tinker with these themes, to see how they work, to, you know, choose how you deal with these issues. If you deal with these issues, it's, it's a compelling piece that is, is still welcoming to 
dedicated theater people to figure out how to produce well. And I think if you if you manage to do that, if you manage to walk the tightrope of those things, you'll have a very fine production on your hands. And there are just some incredibly meaty things for actors to sink their teeth into here. I mean, of course, Will Moore is an incredible part, an incredible opportunity for uh, for an actor. But so are Angelica and Helena. I mean, those are incredible yeah. parts. Those are women characters that don't just use their looks to get out of situations. They're they're written as full bodied women who overpower and overwhelm the men in the show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that, and there's, I mean, there's, that's incredible coming out of the time and, and really still that theater has that problem. Yeah, definitely. And there's there's I mean, there's so much stage combat. There's all sorts of fun, you know, using costumes well and all that. So, yeah, there's there's so much to still sink your teeth into both as an actor and as a production team. Uh, so, I, yeah, I would I would be excited to go see a show. I would be interested to see how I leave the theater, but I would be excited to go see it if I were to hear that it was on somewhere. Yeah. Well, I think that that's all the time we have for this one. Uh, it's always good to revisit these things that have the, the, the bones that theater is built upon, you know, and, and so much of the world of our theater is built on the work that playwrights like Afra Bean did. And so we're, we're grateful to her for her service and for her pioneering in being one of those women that really burst the bubble on women playwrights. And, and hopefully that, that bubble can continue to be burst in our modern theater. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're, we were very excited to get to do this play. It's a play that was taught in our theater classes. And so we know a bunch of you out there have read it because it is taught in theater classes. So if you have read it or perhaps you've been in it or seen it uh, for the rare few who have, if any of those are true, we would love to keep talking to you about this script. It's a very, a very full script. So if there's anything at all that you think we missed or that you want to talk about with us, hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Uh, the username on all of those are at NoScriptPodcast. And uh, we also have a Gmail, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on any of those platforms. And we'd love to keep talking with you about this play and all the themes within. Absolutely. If you like this episode, if you've liked some of our other episodes, one of the things you can do to support the show besides becoming a patron, that's a great thing to do. But other than that, you can also share the episode on your social media. Tell your friends about it. You can find our podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. There's a link to the new episode posted every Monday on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Yeah. So until you see that next post next week about the next play that we are talking about, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for listening to No Script, the podcast. See you next week. Farewell. Farewell.